Defund the police. For some time now, we've heard those cries on television from neighbors, perhaps even family members. But what do we make of such sentiments from a Christian worldview perspective? CNN ran an article not too long ago where they outlined what it means and what it would look like. And I quote, the solution to police brutality and racial inequalities in policing is simple, supporters say. Just defund the police. It's as straightforward as it sounds. Instead of funding a police department, a sizable chunk of a city's budget is invested in communities, especially marginalized ones where the policing, much of the policing occurs, end quote. They go on to indicate that there are people along the spectrum of this movement, ranging from simply reallocating some of the funds to complete disbanding. Another quote, the concept exists on a spectrum, and the two aren't dichotomous but interconnected, but both interpretations center on reimagining what public safety looks like, shifting resources away from law enforcement toward community resources, end quote. They cite as a matter of historical fact that law enforcement in the South began as slave patrol. And then when slavery was abolished, police enforced Jim Crow laws, even the most, for the most minor of infractions. And as they go on, they talk about how disproportionately force is used against blacks in, in various communities. So where would the funds go? Um, they quote, uh, Patrice Cullors, a, a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter, Matters movement, and she says this, those dollars can be put back into social services for mental health, domestic violence, and homelessness, among others. People are often the, I'm sorry, police are often the first responders to all three. These dollars can be used to fund schools, hospitals, housing, and food in these communities, too. All things we know increase safety, end quote. On the complete disbanding end of the spectrum, one group is quoted as saying, the people who respond to crisis in our communities should be the people who are best equipped to deal with these crises rather than strangers with guns. First responders should be mental health providers, social workers, victim advocates, and other community members in less visible roles. They say that law and order isn't abetted by law enforcement, but through education, jobs, and mental health services that low-income communities are often denied. Now, personally, if I'm being robbed at gunpoint some evening or having my home broken into, if I call for help, I don't want a social worker or a victim <laughs> advocate showing up. I'm perfectly fine with a stranger with a gun showing up to my house to take care of the problem. Of course, the point is well taken that some sort of reform should happen. Something is not right. We all see the injustices, we see the complexity of the issues. We feel the tension. But again, how do we make sense of these things from a Christian worldview perspective? That's always the question. Again, our first allegiance is to Christ, right? To make his name great, to glorify him in this world, to see that his will is done, not our own. Well, I think Paul addresses the issue of our relationship with government in Romans chapter 13. Again, that's where we're going to be. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't. Our focus is going to be on verses 1 through 7 this morning. Paul's message can be summed up very simply. Human government exists as an extension of the authority of God. They are his servants. Therefore, the church's relationship to human government is to always be one of submission. 
Our job is not to reform, not to protest, not to cast off the, the fetters of unrighteous government, and certainly not to malign them. Our job is to live in submission to our governing authorities, period. That's what God has called us to do. Let's take a look at that passage together. Again, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, which is true, which does sanctify us. And we pray that as we come before your word this morning, that you would sanctify us, that you would sanctify our thinking, that you'd help us not to think as the world does about the government, but that you'd help us to think as your word would have us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We see two main points in this text. First, the church is to submit to human government as God's ministers by doing what is right. That's in verses 1 through 5. And second, the church is to to submit to human government as God's ministers by giving them honor in verses 6 and 7. We submit to them by doing what is right, and we submit to them by giving them honor. Let's take a look at that first point, that the church is to submit to human government as God's ministers by doing what is right. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Again, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. I've already stated the overarching theme in this section of submission. Believers are to be subject to ruling authorities. We'll talk more specifically what that subjection looks like throughout the section. But the idea itself is not unusual or difficult to understand. The word means just what it says. Be subject. Put yourself in subjection. Put yourself under the authority of another. The, the clearest reference to this would be for, um, uh, for the military. In our military, we have people who are leaders and we have people who are followers. We have people who give commands and instruction. And those who are giving the commands and instruction are followed by those who are subject to them. They submit themselves to that authority. They willingly submit themselves to that authority. They understand they have no other option but to submit to that authority. Be subject. A subject submits. Again, not just with lip service, but with action. Who does the every person refer to? 
In the greater context, Paul has just spent some 11 full chapters providing a detailed overview of the doctrine of salvation. That's what Romans is generally known for. Yet Paul pivots at the beginning of chapter 12, moving from the doctrine that he's just explained to the duty of those who hold to the doctrine. He moved from belief to behavior. Again, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, Paul is appealing to them based on all of what he's just said about God's mercy, based on all of what he said about God's salvation for us in Christ. He's saying, because you have been shown mercy, live this way. Be a living sacrifice. We're not taking calves and bulls at this point. We're offering ourselves. We're offering up our lives to God. Live this way because of God's mercy. And from there, Paul goes on to talk about what that's like. He talks about the relationships of believers to one another as you go through the rest of chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, he moves on to the church's relationship to the world. Because that is equally significant. Again, who is the every person in chapter 13, verse 1? That is every believer. No one is exempt from that. In reality, as one author pointed out, every person means every person, meaning this command really should go out to all people. All people should be subject to governing authorities. Again, because this has been instituted by God. It's not just a church thing, in other words. But certainly it applies to the church, and certainly Paul's conversation is directed to the church. Based on our understanding of God's mercy and our desire to prove what is good and acceptable and perfect as we live our lives as a living sacrifice, every believer should be subject to our governing authorities. Governing authorities, that's also not difficult to understand, right? Those who rule over us, those who in the public square and the secular world have authority over us, Our governors, other local rulers, kings, of course, in our nation, we refer to our president as the one who presides over all. We are to be subject to them. Why? Again, look back at that verse. Paul says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The reason why we subject ourselves to government, why we subject ourselves to human authority is that their authority has been granted to them by God. Their authority, their position, their role has been instituted by God. That's the implication. It's not just God gives them authority, but rather that God has established the office of human government. He's determined that there would be such an entity as human government, and he defines their parameters and desires that we be subject to them. Human government is God's idea. And we notice in that passage that the command to be subject has no other qualifier. It doesn't say be subject as long as you voted for them. It doesn't say be subject as long as you like what they say and are not offended by it. It doesn't say be subject as long as you like the person who is leading you. It says to be subject to them, to submit yourself to them. 
Moreover, this command does not suggest that they, those governing authorities, will always live in accord with the will of God. That's not even the point. And again, there are no qualifiers. It doesn't call upon the church to be the morality check for the government. It doesn't foresee a church intended to reform the government. This text, this command is for the church to subject itself to the government. Human government, again, is not a social construct. Everything is a social construct nowadays if we want to get rid of it, right? That's a whole conversation around gender. Gender is a social construct. And so the society feels, feels good enough to just kind of get rid of it, to do away with it, to disregard it. Human government is not a social construct. Human government has been instituted by God. Its authority is derived from his authority. Therefore, our respect for the government as Christians is ultimately our respect for who? Our respect for God. Peter said it this way from our scripture reading. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We are subject as Christians, again, for the Lord's sake. Not for our comfort. Again, not just when we agree, but for the Lord's sake we subject ourselves. And Paul takes it a step further back in our passage in chapter 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed And those who resist will incur judgment. Failure to submit to the authority of human government is failure to submit to God's authority. Thus ultimately will lead to judgment. The text is not explicit as to what kind of judgment, and I think that's intentional. Certainly he's going to point to temporal judgment in the next couple verses. Judgment from the government itself as it enforces law. But I think that perhaps also Paul intended for us to understand that ultimately God is the one who will judge. I think that's kind of the point, right? Human government is an extension of God's authority. If we disregard this authority that God has granted to human government, then we're disregarding God, and he's not going to be okay with that. But I'll move on from there. I'll point out, as we already know, that there is a time to disregard, to resist, to disobey human government. And we all know that and understand that. Paul alludes to this when he says that there is no authority except from God. In other words, again, all authority is derived from him. He's the greater authority from which all other authority is necessarily dependent and subject. He's the greater authority over all. We just sang about that in a number of hymns. Thus, if one of the lesser authority contradicts his clear command, then we should always obey God rather than men. In chapter 5 of Acts, after the high priest the chief council of the Jews called the apostles to count for their um, preaching of Jesus crucified and risen. They strongly charged the apostles not to teach in the name of Jesus. And that was their response. We must rather obey God than men. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel was an Israelite taken from his home country, brought to Babylon to serve in the court of the king. He had distinguished himself and was serving the king faithfully but continued to make his petitions known to the Lord. Three times daily, Daniel would pray. The other officials who had become jealous of Daniel essentially tricked the king into writing an unrevocable decree that anyone praying to any god besides the king for 30 days would be cast into the lion's den. And we all know what happened there, right? God miraculously delivered Daniel because he was unwilling to pray to anyone but God. Similarly, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought into the king's court and were caught as they would not bow down to a golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What I like about their story is their response to the king. 
In Daniel 3, the king asks, Is it true that you do not serve my gods, fall down and worship? But if you do not, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who is able to deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar and all of his pomp. And their response was, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if not, and the sense is, even if he doesn't choose to deliver us in that way, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In each of those circumstances, the believers had a choice to either obey the command of the king or to obey the command of God. And they chose to obey the command of God. But we understand, particularly in that last example, that obeying the command of God is not a proud, arrogant, um, boastful, uh, protesting, you know, throwing uh, the... Molotov cocktails at windows and and breaking and destroying things until your your voice is heard. It's not that kind of protest. It's not that kind of rebellion. It's not that kind of disobedience. They were willing to suffer whatever consequences may come as a result of their disobedience. And they were confident that God was able to care for them. In the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, you know what? We're trusting and trusting ourselves to God. If God chooses to deliver us from your hand in this instance, that's okay. But if he doesn't, that's okay too. And they recognized and they understood that maybe the way God was planning to deliver them was through their death. And they had accepted that because they trusted in God. And they were willing to obey him rather than the king's command. I want to give us just some clear basic principles for Christian disobedience I think sometimes we mix up our desire to express our rights as Americans with our Christian identity. Number one, if we have to disobey, we ought to because we are convinced that our obedience to the will of human authority would contradict the authority and clear command of God. Again, God is the greater authority. And so his command has to always supersede any other command. And so if we are convinced that there's a clear command in Scripture that a human government is is commanding you to disobey, We have to obey God rather than men. And again, this is not just about what makes us unhappy or uncomfortable, that we we disagree with it for some reason, or that we believe our rights are being infringed upon. This is, there's a clear command in scripture that's been disobeyed. You know, sometimes... uh, I'll, um, I'll have these conversations with my kids, and they never like it when I use them as illustrations. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about different things that need to be done. And sometimes I'll give a command, I'll give an instruction, and I'll just let them know straight up, look, you don't have to like it, right? Because, like, I'm not here for you to like all my commandments, my instructions. Like, you don't have to like it. It's okay if you don't like it. I'm okay that they don't like it, but you still have to do it because that's life, Right? I mean, we understand that. We go to work. We get up and we go, you know, we put in our 40 hours at work. And our authority gives us instructions. And sometimes we don't like what they tell us to do. What do we do? We might grumble and complain in our hearts, but we still get it done. Because we want to take that paycheck home at the end of the day, right? And so we understand that. 
Somehow or another, though, I think, again, our, our, our American um, um, tendencies, our, our, our tendency to, to uh, sort of relish in the American way, to, um, to feel that sense of entitlement, to feel that sense of, um, I have the freedom of speech and I have the freedom of opinion, so I can talk about whatever I want and I can say whatever I want and I can do whatever I want and that sense of entitlement of having multiple options when you go to the store there are a thousand different salad dressings right and we can pick from any one of them that we want and if we don't have the one we want what do we do we go and we talk to the grocer you need to make sure you get this ordered so next time I come in I'll have the one that I want but but all of life doesn't work that way is the point right and certainly as believers we're not instructed, we're not commanded, we're not encouraged to be American in the way we approach life. The American way of life is not God's way of life. And so if we have a governing authority giving us instruction, unless, again, it clearly um, contradicts a command of God, then we must obey and we must be okay with it. So that was one. Two, we ought to be willing to suffer whatever consequences may come from disobeying the king's command. Again, we talked about the role of government in dealing out judgment, and we'll get to that a little bit more in a second, but the reality is that if we're commanded to do something and we do not, we should expect judgment, and we ought to be ready to accept it. Again, if you're driving along and you're going faster than the speed limit is supposed to be, and you see those lights flashing in the, in the rearview mirror, you shouldn't get upset with the police officer. Because you broke the law. You broke the speed limit. So you deserve the punishment. And if we feel convinced that we need to disobey the command of a governing authority because it clearly causes us to disobey the command of God, then we need to be okay with whatever the consequences are. And that leads us to the third principle. We ought to entrust ourselves to God as we endure whatever he allows to come. We ought to entrust ourselves to God. Peter says it, this way, that we have been called for this very purpose. He says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure it with patience, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. But Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, when he went to the cross, when he was accused by his accusers, did not revile in return, did not complain, did not lash out in anger. He just accepted this as the will of God for his life. And in that, he left us an example. Now, back to the main point. Again, the Holy Spirit commands that we be subject to governing authorities, to human government. This is to be the normative practice, the regulative principle when it comes to the church's relationship with human government. Be subject. All authority is God's authority. Their authority is derived from him. Thus, if we disobey their authority, then we're disobeying God's authority. In the broader context of scripture, we may disobey human authority only if we believe it contradicts the clear command of God. Now, you may ask, why does God confer authority on human government? How does this fit into Paul's discussion on working out what is good and acceptable and perfect in the eyes of God? What is their purpose from God's perspective? Let's read on, looking at verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. This is God's purpose for human government. It's not the reality of how government always operates, but it is God's purpose for human government. And we cannot forget that even when human government fails to do what it's been instituted to do. We submit ourselves to human government by doing what is right. Again, they're not a terror for good conduct, but for bad and if we don't want to have fear of those in authority, then Paul says, just do what is right. Do, do what is good. Again, this is God's purpose for government and is generally true. Government exists to keep order in society. That works on a number of different levels. And generally, this is accomplished by rulers giving praise to good and punishment for evil. If you want to live without fear, again, do what is good. It's that simple. Those who do what is good, again, generally have no reason to fear authority. Even if you are caught by authority and you're mistakenly accused or brought into question by that authority, if you've done what is good, they cannot blame you. They cannot persecute you because you've done nothing wrong. Again, this is generally true. Do what is right. Do what is good. That means don't break the law. Follow the law. Abide by the law. If you are a law-abiding citizen, you should have no fear of authority. Human government is a servant of God for your good, he says. They exist to reward good and also to do good for its citizens, to protect you, to watch over you, and to punish those who do evil to you. <clears throat> the flip side is that if you do bad, then you should fear authority. Again, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath for the wrongdoer. Now, this is the second time he's mentioned that human government is a servant of God, and we should be getting the point by now. It is both a servant of God to reward those who do good, to protect those who do good, meaning those who abide by the law. And conversely, it is a servant to avenge, to carry out God's wrath on those who do wrong. Human government is a part of God's plan for justice. Of course, we remember that ultimate justice will come. The believer's hope is not in temporal justice. We don't put our hope in men for ultimate justice to be done. We know that someday soon Jesus will return to this earth and he will make everything right that is wrong with this world. He will straighten everything that is crooked. Every crooked individual, every crooked politician, every crooked human being who's ever walked the faith of this earth will have to stand before judgment to Jesus Christ. And he'll see that they get what they deserve, exactly and specifically what they deserve. But in the meanwhile, human government is still a plant part of God's plan for justice. That's part of God's purpose for human government. Again, until that day, generally speaking, we do not look to our governing authorities to bring about ultimate justice in the world. We do expect for them to bring about temporal justice. And generally, that is true, that they avenge God for wrongs that are done. They exercise his wrath concerning sin on earth. Now, I'm a black man living in America. I don't know if you guys knew that, but sometimes when I leave the house, I leave out with my baseball cap, wearing jeans, a t-shirt, perhaps a hoodie. 
I have a halfway decent looking car. It's not, you know, quite as nice as Pastor Chris or Pastor Scott's rides, you know, but <laughs> it's decent for what it is. <clears throat> I like to drive with the windows down and sometimes my music up. And this is not like windows down, music up, like, you know, shaking the windows of people's houses in the community as I go by, but um, I do turn it up a little bit every once in a while. I say all that to say, since most of y'all don't see me on those days, that sometimes I fit the description. That's just what it is. I'm not trying to fit any kind of description. I just sometimes I fit the description. I remember one time uh, at work when when I was working at a bank, we would uh, from time to time have these blasts that go out, this, these communications when, you know, there's a bank robbery in the area and we'd say, hey, you know, there's a bank robbery in the area, so, you know, heads up, everybody keep an eye out, and they'll, you know, try to give a description. And it, and it was the most vague description I've ever seen. Like, we're taught to, I, I don't know, I'm not, it doesn't matter. We're taught to pay attention to things that are not, um, not easily changeable. Um, you know, when in, at a bank, in a bank setting, you're taught to pay attention to things about people when they're coming in that are not easily changeable. So you're not looking at their clothing. You're not looking at a hat that they're wearing. You're not looking at those, those kinds of things that they could kind of chuck after they do their deed, right? But this description was like, you know, a male between 18 and 30 years old, black male, about five, you know, 5'10", 190 pounds, wearing a plaid shirt, and a cap. And I'm like, that's me. <laughs> so I responded to the email. I was like, look, guys, we got to do better than this because that's, that's literally me just about every day. Um, we we got to do better. But, I mean, sometimes it's like that, though, right? So I can personally relate to conversations about racial inequality, racial profiling. It's been done to me before. And not even necessarily when I was wearing the hoodie or, or the hat or you know, playing the the slightly louder music, destroying my eardrums. But I've got nothing to hide, and I did nothing wrong, so ultimately there was no problem, but it has happened. I've never been so poorly treated as some others just in recent years, but I do understand the desire for change and the desire to talk about change. At the same time, the reality for me as a Christian is that it's not my responsibility to change the broader society to fix the problem of racism, to address and speak out against harms brought to minorities and other such injustices as it happens. That's not my job. That's not my duty. Even if I become a victim, again, in the future of profiling or something of that nature, it's still not going to be my job as a Christian. My job as a Christian is to affirm the word of God, to by the mercies of God present my body as a living and holy sacrifice to him, to trust in the word of God, to pursue the purposes of God, to pursue that which is good and acceptable and perfect to him. Again, yes, to be zealous for good deeds. There should be no time when I, as a believer, put myself in the position of doing evil, to the point of this passage, disobeying the law, whether that be a traffic violation or something more significant. I should be a law-abiding citizen, and there should be no doubt I, as a Christian, should be zealous to submit to those who govern and to do what is right. Remember again from 1 Peter chapter 2 that Peter says that this is the way we silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
men who doubt, men who cast blame, men who target, men who believe all manner of things about us because of the way we look, because of external things. We silence the ignorance of foolish men, Christians, by submitting to those governing us, by submitting to governing authorities, by doing what is right, by honoring God in that way. No amount of yelling or protest will do better. And when the people who are supposed to protect and serve go outside of their authority, usurp that authority or abuse authority, I must see that as a product of the sinful world we live in, not as evidence that God's purposes for human government have failed. I must still affirm that God's purposes for human government are good. Look again at verse 5. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. I think that's what Paul is getting at. At the end of the day, we must affirm the truth of Scripture. No matter how we feel about the sin of others, government is good. Law and order is good. Again, I don't want a social advocate showing up at my door if someone's breaking in. I don't care if they're a stranger. If they have a gun and a police uniform on, that's the person I want showing up at my door. And I would guess that 10 out of 10 of the people who are screaming to high heaven, defund the police, would want the same thing. Again, what do we do when we see things going wrong, when we see the government isn't doing what it's designed to by God? From a Christian worldview perspective, what should we be doing? Just to be clear... We continue to seek to properly adorn the doctrine of salvation by means of being zealous for good deeds, being subject to rulers and authorities, and by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what changes people's hearts. That's what's going to ultimately make the difference in the world. That's what sets us apart from the world. Gospel is God's power to save, not my protests. We are to submit ourselves to human government by doing what is good. And again, the greatest good that we can do for our neighbor, for our neighborhoods, for our families, is to preach the gospel. As we talked about last week, that's how God saves people. He saves individuals. He reconciles them to himself by using other reconciled individuals. But again, the church is to submit to human government as God's ministers by doing what is right. Also, the church is to submit to human government as God's ministers by giving them honor. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Because of this, because of what? He's continuing the topic of being in subjection. We submit by doing good, and we are to submit by giving honor. There are two sides of the same coin. The primary reference to this issue of giving honor in this text is paying taxes. We all know what that's all about. The extended tax filing deadline just passed. It's always a busy time of year at work for me. Now, I can understand the reasoning of an unbeliever who fails to pay their taxes, refuses, and otherwise just looks to get around paying taxes. I cannot fathom why or how believers would do that. And yet, we know that there are some believers who do and have no problems with it. Sometimes they do so with full knowledge that they're wrong. 
Other times they do so citing their conscience, meaning they choose not to pay their taxes, believing that their tax dollars will go to some illicit or sinful act that the government is a part of. This text is clear that we ought to pay taxes. There's no exception to that. Authorities are ministers of God. Pay to all what is owed to them. Tax to whom tax, revenue to whom revenue. There's no way to explain away that text. Jesus mentioned this in the Gospels. The Pharisees were trying to trick him in Matthew 22. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus simply replied, whose face is on the coin? And they say Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. It's his coin. Honor him by paying him the tax. Again, back in our text, what about the conscience issue? Again, the reality is there are no qualifiers to this text. And the only reason why we should be disobeying our governing authority is if they're clearly commanding us to do something that violates a command of God. Paying taxes owed to the government does not clearly violate the command of God. It just doesn't. In one sense, it really doesn't matter what they do with the money. Some of the money goes to pay their salaries. I mean, who decides the salaries, right? I don't know. Why are the salaries so high? I don't know. What do they do with their money? I mean, I'm paying taxes. I'm paying their salaries. What are they doing with the money after it gets into their bank account? I don't know. I can't police that. What if the money goes to fund abortion? Again, I can't police that. What if it goes to fund the sexual revolution, those gender reassignment surgeries? Again, I can't police that. That's out of my hand as a Christian, as a subject. I mean, I understand us not wanting to see that happen. I get that. And we certainly have the right to vote according to those convictions, right? But ultimately, we have to understand that God's command in this text is clear. That we're not first representing ourselves, that we're not first representing our wants, our desires. From a Christian worldview perspective, we understand that we're not first Americans pursuing our own personal rights, but that we're first Christians. We represent Jesus. We're to make Jesus big in this world, to glorify him, to magnify him, to work out what is good and acceptable and perfect in his eyes. And for us, in the context of this passage, that involves submitting to our governing authority and paying our taxes. Just pay your taxes. Our purpose in paying taxes is not to ensure that we know that our tax dollars are going to our favorite government spending fund, nor is it to make sure that it doesn't go to support something wicked. Our purpose in paying taxes is to see that the servants of God are well supported. That's what the text says. Again, whether we always agree with them or not, they're still servants of God, ministers of God, attending to his will, keeping order in society. We pay taxes for that basic reason. If that helps your conscience, think about it that way. God has his purposes for human government. They need to be supported to achieve those goals. He will ultimately hold them accountable for how they achieve those goals. But in the meanwhile, we are instructed to support them and to give to them what's due to them. 
Again, back in the text, taxes are the primary referent in these couple of verses, but he does expand it a bit at the end of verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Just as much as we submit by paying taxes, as much as we honor those who serve in human government by paying our taxes, we also honor them by giving them respect and honor when it's due. I'll bet that for those of you who don't struggle with paying your taxes, that perhaps you have struggled at some point in the past, even if it was just in the past four years, with part of this part of submission. You cannot say that you're submitting to a person if you demean them with your words. We as believers are commanded to submit to our governing authorities. That includes our words, whether or not we give honor to those who deserve honor. The leader of our nation, no matter the party he represents, deserves honor. The governor of our state, no matter the party he represents, deserves honor. Other local officials, law enforcement, military, they're all a part of the body of governing authorities. They deserve honor. How are you doing with that? Perhaps you didn't know this was a big deal. Listen again to what Peter says. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Paul says in Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Listen to this. To speak evil of no one. The word there is literally where we get our word blaspheme from. To blaspheme is to give speech that denigrates, that defames, that reviles, that disrespects, that slanders. He says, speak evil of no one. That includes those governing authorities. Paul goes on to say that we should do this because we didn't save ourselves and we weren't good people to begin with. We were also once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various lusts and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He says, that was us. But God in his kindness rescued us. God in his mercy saved us. So how dare you malign someone else? No matter how wicked they are. The last time you referred to your governing authorities, particularly when they did something you didn't like, did you obey this command to speak evil of no one? To not blaspheme them? To not defame or denigrate? To not disrespect them? Respecting and honoring them is a part of how you submit biblically. Again, we sometimes mistake our American rights with our Christian identity. Your freedom of speech is not upheld in Scripture. I don't see it anywhere on the pages of Scripture. You are to speak evil of no one, to be gentle, to show every courtesy to all people. That's biblical. That's how you ought to speak. And particularly when there are people who deserve honor, we are to give honor to them. Disagree all you want, but do it in a respectful way. It hurts my heart to hear the way some believers talk about our ruling authorities. Our president, again, no matter what you think about him, deserves honor. Our governor deserves honor. Again, law enforcement officials deserve honor. Can anyone tell that you are different in the way you speak of, refer to, or directly address our governing authorities? 
Well, what else can we do instead? Again, there are ways to make our voices heard. We can vote. There are ways to appeal injustice. As Citizens America, we have the rights. We have rights, and we can make use of those things. We're free to use those rights, but so long as our usage of those rights do not take away from our primary mission as a church to preach the truth of the gospel. If we're too caught up in those social um, activities that we lose sight of our primary mission, then we've lost our effectiveness in the world. Beyond those rights that we have as citizens, as Christians, we ultimately make our voices heard by petitioning the one who has authority over all. 1 Timothy chapter 2, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The church is to be always on mission. That means we ought always to be in prayer for our governing authorities so that we might carry out that mission for his glory. What is the church's relationship to the government? It is to be one of submission. We are to submit by seeking to do what is good. Certainly our greatest good, the greatest good that we can do is to preach the gospel. And we submit by giving honor both by paying taxes as well as with our words and our attitudes. I'll leave you with this quote. Believers are to be model citizens, known as law-abiding, not rabble-rousing, obedient rather than rebellious, respectful of government rather than demeaning of it. We must speak against sin, against injustice, against immorality and ungodliness with fearless dedication, but we must do it within the framework of civil law and with respect for civil authorities. We are to be a godly society, doing good, and living peaceably within an ungodly society, manifesting our transformed lives so that the saving power of God is clearly seen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do give you thanks for this day. We thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. We thank you for this command and for the ability that we have to correct our way of thinking, to obey this command of Scripture. God, help us to be subject to those who govern us, to those ruling authorities. Help us not to be rebellious. Help us to be obedient. Help us to take a posture of submission toward them. Help us to remember to pay our taxes, to be good citizens, not just so that we can be ingratiated towards them, but so that you would be glorified so that we would honor your purposes for human government, so that we would honor your purposes for human government, and so that Jesus would be glorified through us, and so that we'd be able to preach the gospel with a clear conscience. In Christ's blessed name, amen.